Welcome to the Secure Your Retirement Podcast. Today, we interview Bill Sherman, and it was a super good interview. We've said it before, buy and hold investing carries too much risk, and Bill Sherman tells us why. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Secure Your Retirement Podcast. This is the place where high-achieving professionals come to gain confidence on how to successfully navigate their transition into and life during retirement. There's no such thing as a passive retirement plan. To have a successful financial future, your plan must be actively managed. Each week, we will bring you action plans and expert interviews that will help you gain insights, learn fresh perspectives, and finally experience peace of mind about your retirement. Here to help you achieve your dream retirement and live the life you deserve are your hosts, certified financial planners, Raiden Stancil and Merce Tariq. Hello, everyone. It's Raiden Stancil and Merce Tariq. We are glad and happy to be able to be here today talking with Bill Sherman, and uh, we're excited to have him on our podcast. And I'll explain a little bit about uh, what I know of him and our uh, relationship and how we work together. Uh, Merce and I have been talking for some time over the years about needing to be able to look at the markets, the stock market in a different kind of way, meaning we don't want to uh, look at the markets and think that we have some crystal ball that's going to tell us what's going to happen. We need to look at the numbers and let the numbers tell us where things are headed. And so, uh, one of the things that we get from Bill Sherman and his group are is we get those numbers. We get that data. And I thought it would be fantastic to have him come on and talk a little bit about his viewpoint, how he got to where he is today and what makes him believe the way he believes. So, Bill, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. It's my pleasure. Good. Hey, would you just mind telling our listeners and everybody like, you know, where you're from and kind of where you grew up and where you live now? Well, is that boring? St. Louis, Missouri, St. Louis, Missouri, and St. Louis, Missouri. Oh, <laughs> although I did spend some spend some time living in the Detroit and Flint, Michigan area, and then uh, in the uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana area shortly after marriage. But uh, but born and raised in St. Louis, uh, went to school in Michigan, then graduated with an engineering degree from Washington U in St. Louis after I got married in 1969, and uh, moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana, where I was an engineer on uh, the truck engines line of Internet for International Harvester, and um, uh, moved there, frankly, because they they offered a a job deferment uh, against the draft in the Vietnam War, and I wasn't anxious to get drafted because I was newly married at the time, and so I uh, moved to there, got a uh, a job deferment as an engineer working on contracts that included the U.S. Army. And uh, unfortunately, the draft by lottery system was uh, brought out in 1970, beginning on January 1st. And I was one of the lucky souls that was drafted on February 1st. My draft number was, uh, lottery number was 38. And they went from 31 to 59 on January, on February 1st. And so I was drafted. Uh, however, I w uh, was uh, rejected by the draft, thankfully, by a kindly old doctor who noted that I was uh, recently married with a pregnant wife who was, we had been married the previous year, so, and she was due on April 5th. 
And this was uh, mid-February when I went to the induction center. And this kindly old doctor decided that a, a fellow with a, a very pregnant wife uh, shouldn't be in, the, uh, in there and found uh, some reason to reject me uh, medically, which I happily accepted, uh, and found myself out on uh, standing in the middle of Broadway in downtown Indianapolis looking around wondering what just happened. And so I, I went back home. Uh, my wife, shortly thereafter, thank goodness I hadn't been drafted, shortly thereafter was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And she's had that for 50 years and is now uh, disabled. And uh, God knows what would have happened had, had she been struggling on her own with a newborn. So things worked out. And, but we moved back to St. Louis to be in the bosom of our families uh, who could help care for, for Gail, my wife, uh, in her early stages of MS. But one thing that happened at International Harvester changed things for me forever, which is that among the assignments that I had when I was there was to automate the uh, engine labs, the dynamometer labs. And to do so, I uh, called around to the people that sold various components for automation and got real friendly with a fellow from a, an outfit called Digital Equipment Corporation, DEC. Uh, then a very big company and a leader in automation and computers. And uh, and he guided me in, in doing some automation work, and I never forgot that. And I grew very fond of the Digital Equipment Corporation and stuff and ended up going uh, to work for them in St. Louis when we moved back. Uh, my wife was then ill, had a newborn baby and all that stuff. But I was in the computer business from that point on, computers of some sort and programming in particular and did that for both digital equipment and, and several other firms on a direct employee or a consultant basis. Um, in fact, I was a consultant to digital equipment in, in 1989 uh, when I fast forwarded through a lot of years of programming and consulting. But I was assigned by digital equipment to a project at the Hong Kong Shanghai Bank, and they had huge operations in New York, London, and Hong Kong. And uh, the goal was to tie together all of their currency trading operations uh, through a, a network that ran on uh, Digital Equipment Corporation computers and workstations. And I didn't know a thing about trading or uh, programming for trading, but I learned a lot of it there. And that was the start of moving into the investment business. It was all for the first 10 or more years, I guess, I guess for the first 10 years, it was dominated by commodities and currencies because that's, that's how I was introduced to it. But in 1998, uh, began to produce information for uh, stock investments and mutual fund investors. Uh, and that began what, uh, what has evolved over time into the service that you are now a participant in the Sherman Sheet in which we provide valuable information every day of the week for advisors to use in guiding their clients under one overarching uh, philosophy, and that is disaster avoidance risk management. In fact, one of our early slogans was disaster avoidance is no accident. And we, uh, we frequently used a picture of the Titanic sinking into the North Atlantic to illustrate that you know, disaster avoidance in the case of those ships in the North Atlantic was taking risk reduction measures. If you were a captain on the nearby SS California, for example, you cut your engines back to idle 
and didn't go plowing through an iceberg field like the Titanic did, and you avoided catastrophe. And that analogy holds true today, maybe even more so, that disaster avoidance is no accident, it means not having an accident. And that led me to conclude early on that, uh, that buy and hold investing uh, was uh, simply the Titanic plowing ahead. Some ships make it, some ships don't, but that is an unacceptable risk. Um, so that's that's the backstory of how we got to be where you are, and uh, and I'd be delighted to to field more questions before I go off the deep end here. <laughs> yeah, uh, Bill, thank you very much for you know giving us the whole backstory, and it makes sense that uh, you were an engineer in the past, and then you got into the computers and all that stuff. I mean, everything you do now for for what we look for is very data driven, so all of that makes a lot of sense and. Um, so we're going to dive into a few different topics here, but, uh, the first one is, you know, you talk about supply and demand and, and allocating or, or, or having a good grip as to where the numbers are in the market and not so much really guessing about where things are going to go. Uh, so I want to talk about asset allocation and, or what's known as buy and hold, or that's how we call it. Buy and hold. You buy, uh, you buy, you know, a certain set of stocks or mutual funds, and you just kind of hold them throughout. And there's going to be issues here and there. But, you know, the idea is at the end of the day, it'll you'll make some money. Um, so we, what's the main flaw that you see there as far as asset allocation, buy and hold type investing? Sure. Buy and hold is terrific if you are an institution with an infinite lifespan, because then the problem with buy and hold never bothers you. And the problem of buy and hold is that you lose 50% or more of the value of your holdings from time to time. But if you're an institution with an infinite lifespan, you don't care. You're going to be around for 100 years and it won't make any difference. But if you're a flesh and blood human being that maybe needs to, needs that money when the market's down 50%, your life has just been catastrophically changed. And that's the kind of, of accident that uh, or catastrophic uh, event that we wish to avoid at all costs, and that's why that's why we do a, a risk-focused investing and assessment of the market, in which we do our darndest to get out of the way to reduce risk when the measurements that we make that you referred to indicate a unacceptably high level of risk that forces us into action. You know, we're not we're not fraidy cats hiding behind the tree from every shadow. Um, but we, by all means, wish to get out of the way of uh, of high risk as it plays out in the market, not to anticipate it, not to say, you know, something is going to happen. But when things do happen in the market, we want to make sure that, uh, that we interpret them uh, from a risk management perspective and act on them to avoid catastrophe. You know, during, let's say, the most recent years in which this this would have been uh, known to all of our listeners was the period between 1999 and 2013. That was a 14-year period during which the S&P was below its peak of 1999, early 2000. It didn't exceed that previous peak until mid-2013. And if you were a NASDAQ investor, it didn't exceed that peak until 2016 or 17. That is a long time to be underwater. Even if you've got an infinite lifespan, that's a long time. But what if you were among the tens of millions of investors who needed their money 
during that period of time when they were underwater relative to their their previous high in the late 90s or early 2000s. And that's the catastrophe that we want to uh, guard against. Say, for, take for example, a 55 year old at the end of 1999 who thought to himself, hey, I'm in good shape. Some of my tech investments have paid off. If I want to retire at the age of 65, why all I'll need is average market returns for the next 10 years, and I'll be in great shape. 10 years later, though, in 2009, the market was down 50% or more, just beginning its recovery, and he needed his money. And it's gone nowhere but down over that period of time, particularly if he was a growth or tech investor, and his life was catastrophically changed for the worse. And it's that kind of outcome that buy and hold proponents completely ignore because they take that infinite lifespan perspective, which is completely inappropriate for flesh and blood human beings. Yeah, that uh, makes perfect sense, um, if, especially for Merce and I, our, our client, uh, our, our, the people we work with are what we define as close to, with, 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 which means about 10 years with close to retirement or already in retirement. And so their time span is even shorter. And so for them to, to have protection or risk management is extremely important. And that's one of the things we talk about. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes we find that as we're starting the conversation with someone or we're, we're talking about it, and maybe they go back and they talk to their current advisor who does much more of the buy and hold, they instantly want to say, yeah, well, there's no way you can time the market. And these guys are trying to time the market. And then we try to explain to our client, which we do, uh, why that's not the case. But I'd like to hear from you, what's the difference or from your perspective, from what you do and how you provide information, how is that not timing the market? Well, that's become a pejorative or an insult uh, over the years because the buy and hold proponents use it that way. They use it as a club. Uh, but what we do is through the perspective of risk management is measure risk, its ebb and flow, and when uh, the, the flow of risk is unacceptably high, uh, we step aside uh, or we reduce our exposure. And, and our record of doing so is, is very good, uh, and the ability to avoid catastrophe is indisputable there. Most people's concept of timing the market is to say, well, uh, this is a top, the market's going down from here, or this is a bottom, I'm, uh, I'm market's going up from here. But always thinking about what the market's going to do. Um, we concentrate rather on, on relatively uh, immediate measurements um, in the market. And we do it by a variety of means. Uh, but one major category that you mentioned early on was the, the balance of supply and demand. Uh, we we measure the uh, imbalances of supply and demand um, and how they play out in the uh, short, intermediate, and long term because they are a good reflection of the internals of the market. You know, the, the externals of the market and how things are doing from an external view might be saying one thing, but if you look internally, uh, you know, advances, advancers versus decliners, how much NYSE volume was to the upside, how much to the downside, how many new 52-week highs are being set versus 52-week lows, those sorts of things, which are completely Greek to uh, to a layperson, uh, are the inner workings of the market. And those are the things that, uh, that we pay uh, the most close attention to, to determine if there's a significant enough deterioration 
to trigger alarm bells, which should cause us to step aside. And we aren't afraid to get back in. You know, sometimes uh, the alarm bells trigger and we step aside or reduce exposure. Um, and it turns out that disaster doesn't occur. Um, and we, when we get a reduced risk signal that the risk has gone away or subsided, we were happy to get back in. And that's okay. You know, one of, one of the major problems of do-it-yourself investors is when they get scared out of the market, they have no idea when to get back in, and they never do. Uh, and that you can count millions and millions of investors in that category, particularly after the 2008 and 9 debacle when tens of millions of investors fled the market and never came back because they didn't know when or how. I hope that you are enjoying the show. By the way, if you are in or nearing retirement and are someone who wants to gain clarity on what questions you should be asking, learn what the biggest retirement myths are, and identify what you could be doing to achieve peace of mind for your retirement, get started today by requesting your complimentary video course, Four Steps to Secure Your Retirement. To access the course, simply visit pomwealth.net forward slash podcast. If you're new here or you haven't done this yet, this is definitely the first step to get started in applying these principles to your life. So head over to pomwealth.net forward slash podcast and check us out. On the, on the topic of supply and demand, um, how do you, so you've kind of mentioned it, it without going too technical, you have a way of defining what's in demand, whether it's, you know, a tech technology, whether it's large cap or maybe small caps making a move or maybe emerging markets, you have a way of tracking that. But then you mentioned that there's a time that we decide to go in all essence, risk off. Things aren't looking as good from a numbers perspective. What, what causes that risk off scenario and how do you see that? How do you unpack it? Sure. Well, uh, we do it on several timeframes, a large scale timeframe uh, and a shorter timeframe. So in a large scale timeframe, for example, um, our supply and demand measurements went negative on January 11th of 2008 which was just at the, at the beginning of the big bear market of 2008 and 9, but it was not at the beginning of the deterioration of supply and demand internals of the market. They had been deteriorating since October, so it was three months of deterioration before uh, our, that uh, triggered that risk off on January 11th of 2008, which was then succeeded uh, in short order by, by a crash in the market that and a rebound in Q4 and another crash into the ultimate March 9th of 2009 bottom. And that uh, we didn't get a low risk signal until May 15th of 2009. So we were on the large time frame. We were out of the market the entire time. Um, and um, of that crash, which served us very well, our shorter term time frames uh, have a role to play as well. D this year, for example, our shorter term indicator went negative on March 3rd or 4th, I forget which it was, uh, and then went positive again when we had uh, risk uh, reduced in the market after coming off a terrible 35% drop on March 26th. And that allowed us, those, uh, those who used the shorter term indicator, to avoid um, almost all of that huge decline in the first quarter of this year uh, to our great benefit. Our, our model's doing great this year as a consequence. So we, we operate on several timeframes um, and advisors like you can, you know, can 
determine which of them are most appropriate for you and your clientele, which to follow, which uh, have the right amount of activity, that sort of thing. But they are all modeled under the same concept, and that is looking for, in their particular time frame, uh, signs of deteriorating internals uh, on a risk reward or on a supply and demand basis, um, and uh, improving fundamentals at the other end, uh, which uh, on a supply and demand basis, which uh, which would allow us to to get back in, and we try to keep emotion out of it to the to the highest degree. You know, and we don't let it climb creep into any of our numbers. You know, we might have. Uh, emotional feelings about the market. We certainly do, but it doesn't creep into the numbers. And that allows us to overcome uh, a lot of biases that fear and greed can put into decision-making. Uh, I'll never forget reading a white paper one time from an academic that pointed out that, that fear has eight times the motivating power of greed. Uh, which means that people are are much more likely to act on fear than they are to act on greed uh, or whatever nicer phrase you want to put for that word. Um, so that means, unfortunately, that people uh, flee frequently when the market has a downturn of 25, 35% or more, uh, but fear has so transfixed them, uh, they can't see their way back in because they're fearful of another downturn, fearful of a repeat, uh, and that fear is such a high motivator that it completely clouds their vision and prevents them from making rational decisions. So our decisions we try to make on on the basis of factual measurements um, without letting emotions into the equation at all. Yeah, you know, I I hear what you're saying, and it it makes me think. You know, I know in your in your work, you talk a lot about predictions and the financial news networks and how that there's constant predictions. We saw that exact same thing as you talk about this year. You know, we were able to uh, navigate what was a very difficult February, March timeframe. And then we did have to make this decision based on the numbers to get back in. And I will say that for Merce and I, you know, we're looking at the fundamental part of everything. We're looking at the news just like everybody else was with the coronavirus going, but yet the numbers said, hey, it's time to get back in, or at least there's a valid reason to get back in. And that was a tough call to say, get back in. And we had some clients who said, I don't want to get back in. And not, not many, just literally one or two. But here's what's happened recently, you know, around the idea that we now are sitting in a place where potential of a surge in in new coronavirus cases, um, whether or not how the um, the election we're recording this prior to the election, but people may be listening to it and we just had an election. But regardless, some people are going, hey, you know what, just based on that risk of all the news I'm hearing and all the predictions that I'm hearing, I just want to get out. And we talk all the time about, well, when are you going to get back in? So, I mean, how do you how do you talk about this whole idea of when you hear this mountain of information around predictions? And you can have 50, 60 predictions every single morning if you get up and read the financial news or watch the news networks. I mean, how do you kind of help people think that through a little bit when it comes to that? Well, mostly by coming to an understanding of why we hear them, and that is because it attracts eyeballs or ears, and that's how those folks get paid, by delivering eyeballs or ears to their TV or radio shows. Uh, and so they know that what's, what gathers the most eyeballs and ears is a constant stream of predictions 
trying to tell us what we can't otherwise know. And those those predictions uh, are in the on the whole worthless. Of course, if you have two people predicting, one saying the market's going to go up and the other saying the market's going to go down, one of them is going to be right on the whole, and the other one's going to be wrong. But how do you know? You can't know in a, in advance. Um, and even the the wisest among us who have the biggest uh, pulpits can be completely wrong. I, I have in mind Paul Krugman, the economist who was a writer at the New York Times on business and economics, who wrote on the on the night of the election in 2016 that the, the market was doomed, it was going to go down. And uh, the phrase he used was, my best guess on when it recovers, never. And I'm sure a lot of people who, uh, who follow his musings um, were driven from the market as a consequence and missed uh, you know, four years of a big, big run-up since then. Uh, who knows what's going to happen in the future? I don't. God does, I guess, but, uh, but I don't. But I do know that uh, bear markets in the market are, must be accompanied by deteriorating market internals. Otherwise, they wouldn't be bear markets. And we will uh, discover them in an early enough stage to take action. And if they play out, uh, we will have avoided them. If they don't uh, come to fruition, uh, we'll get back in when we get when they have subsided to the level of acceptable risk. And uh, we won't think twice about it. We'll go forward with no apologies. And in in the end, we will survive and thrive. Whereas those who don't take any evasive action when risk is high, uh, may not survive and definitely won't thrive. Yeah, Bill, I got to agree. <clears throat> I think, you know, if, if we were in the situation where we had to invest right this moment based off of the fundamentals, based off of everything that we're seeing and essentially make a guess, you know, for the next couple months or next couple years or whatever, I would be terrified to make that decision. There's just so much going on. So I'm very happy to say that, you know, we don't have to work that way. And we're, it's, it's, a, it's, we're in a situation where we can tell clients that we're basically, we're working off of what we know. And quite honestly, we get a lot of good responses based off of that. Cause it, you know, there's so many opinions out there. Everyone's reading all the opinions and they're like, how do you even decide which way to go? Well, luckily we don't have to, but Bill, I think we've got time for one more. And, um, this was a quote, a quote that I actually heard you bring up, but I kind of want to, um, understand what it means to you. The quote that you mentioned, um, in one of your, uh, uh, talks was basically from Benjamin Graham, who is known as the Dean of wall street. He said, the essence of investment management is the management of risk, not the management of returns. Now, we kind of talk about risk management all the time. And, you know, there's always in the investor, the ideal situation is you're making money in the market, making returns. And sometimes that's all they really think about is, you know, getting the 10, 15, 20% up years. Um, but can you unpack that, that quote for us and what you think it means, how, how you know, you interpret it? Sure. The normal investor does just what you described, and that is uh, focus on the potential for big up years and uh, how wonderful that's going to be without considering the fact that those are going to be accompanied by the occasional horrific bear markets that ruin everything. And the one of the things that uh, the, the dean of Wall Street, Benjamin Graham's students, Warren Buffett, 
said, Ben Graham, in addition to being a fabulously successful investor and writer, was also a professor at Columbia University where in finance, where one of his students back in the day was a fellow named Warren Buffett, who says even to this day that everything he learned about investing, he learned at the feet of Benjamin Graham. But uh, Warren Buffett has a lot of good phrases worth quoting too, um, and among them is, you win uh, by not losing. And the, the the essence of that, of course, is that uh, I heard somebody say in uh, in football that uh, defense wins games, uh, and that's is true in investing as well. If you have no catastrophes in your journey from start to finish in investing, number one, you're not going to get blown out, and you're not going to join the millions of investors who were smoldering by the side of the road because they got burned out uh, and bombed out in the, in the depths of a bear market. Uh, and the millions of others who needed their money, no matter how disciplined they were uh, about staying with the course, staying the course as buy and hold investors, if they just simply had to have their money for health or real estate or to tuition or just living expenses in retirement, they too were catastrophically affected. So, Focusing on risk management to assure, to ensure that those catastrophically bad outcomes don't occur, yet still being around to participate in the upside uh, is the winning combination. Uh, one of the measurements that we apply to our own model portfolios is a, is a set of uh, statistics called up capture and down capture, which is basically the report card for our models. And up capture means what percentage of the market's upside did this model capture? The downside, the down capture is what percentage of this model's downside or this market's downside did this model capture? And our goal is to capture a quite high percentage of the market's upside while capturing a low percentage of this market of the market's downside. And we have um, a typical model for us is one that captures maybe between uh, 70 and 90% of the upside. In other words, we are not going to capture all the upside. You know, our risk management alone is going to ensure that we that we aren't there at the exact bottom and we aren't there at the exact top. Uh, you know, but we'll take that fat part out of the middle. And so if we capture 70 to 90% of the upside, but then turn around and only capture 24 or 25, 27, 30% of the downside, we're in great shape. And that comes up to a ratio typically of, of two to one, three to one, four to one, upside capture to downside capture. And that's when you know you've got a real winner on your hands and that over time, you will capture enough of the upside to forge way ahead by virtue of not capturing very much of the downside. And I, I know that sounds kind of geeky, but that really is what we strive for. High percentage up capture, low percentage down capture. Well, that's, uh, I mean, everything we, we hear from you, uh, Bill, is is always something that, that just connects with us. It connects with our, our clients, the way they think. Um, and, I, and I'm positive that just hearing your words and kind of as you 
are able to articulate some of these thoughts is going to be very, very beneficial to our listeners. So I just want to say again, thank you very much for buying out a little bit of your time uh, to, to talk to us, to answer our questions and to share your insights. So we appreciate it very, very much. Braden Merz, it was my pleasure. All right, everyone, that wraps up today's episode of the Secure Your Retirement podcast. If you found value in today's episode, we would love nothing more than for you to head on over to iTunes and give us a five-star rating and a review. Be sure to take a screenshot of the review before you submit it, and we'll send you a special gift. Our book, Get Off the Retirement Roller Coaster. Just email morgan at pomwealth.net with a screenshot of the review to get your gift. Also, be sure to subscribe so you get notified of new episodes as they're released every week. And finally, please share our podcast with your favorite social network so more of your friends and family can benefit from this information. Always remember, you've worked hard to get where you are, and now you deserve to have a retirement that works hard for you.